Navigating the Energy Price Crisis. Interview with Killian O'Donoghue, episode 65. Welcome to the My Energy 2050 podcast, where we speak to the people building a clean energy system by 2050. I'm your host, Michael LaBelle. This week, we speak with Killian O'Donoghue, the policy director at Euroelectric. It is the Federation of the European Electricity Industry representing more than 3,500 utilities active in power generation, distribution, and supply. They have a real voice in the energy transition, and we're really honored to have Killian on. The reason for this interview was I wanted to know how the electricity sector as a whole was navigating the current energy crisis of high prices and shifting geopolitical realities. We definitely see this on the landscape. This includes the perceived impact of the Fit for 55 policies and the new Repower EU plan in light of the Ukrainian-Russian war. For this perspective, I turn to Killian. He's a former student of mine from Central European University and also a former representative of Eurometal. It's also an association of large energy consumers. You can hear that in the previous interview for episode 48. I'll include the link in the show notes. In this episode, you'll hear about how the sector as a whole sees the need for energy efficiency and reducing our electricity consumption now. While the membership of Euroelectric produces and sells electricity, the current state of the system requires everyone to reduce consumption. We discuss the longer-term prospects of the industry and how greater electrification of the economy relies on wind and solar for a majority of power production by 2045. But we also address the role of nuclear power in the future. Overall, this is a great follow-up to the previous episode 63 with Florian Kern and our discussion there about hydrogen. In that episode, Florian outlines why electrification of the economy is so essential for the future. For me, how Europe will be producing power without Russia is one of the most influential considerations I have when doing my research now. I think this is completely undervalued about how Europe develops its electricity network in the future without including Russia. There's just no way back. This episode delivers both foresight into the European energy landscape and has a substantial discussion on the opportunities within the power market. We can already see this in the awarding of nuclear power contracts by the Polish government to US and South Korean manufacturers. There is an immediate geopolitical pivot within the European energy sector and it'll be a rapid transformation. A final note, this interview was done for my current role as an Open Society University Network Senior Fellow at Chatham House, the Royal Institute of International Affairs. I'm really honored to hold this position. The funding was generously provided to produce the podcast until the end of 2022. So we definitely have some amazing interviews coming up. I'm lining those up now. And there's a lot of travel and there's going to be some really in-depth discussions about this challenge of shifting away from Russia and what Europe's going to be doing in the future. The intent of the My Energy 2050 podcast is to spread the knowledge about how the energy system can assist our transition towards a greener future. The content of each episode is great for teaching, research, and identifying how you can assist this energy transition. And now for this week's episode. I want to welcome onto the episode today, Killian O'Donoghue. He's the direct policy director at Euroelectric. And Killian, this is actually the second time on the podcast. I want to say thank you for coming again. Uh, my pleasure, Mike. Yes, second time. Uh, I'm getting a, a, sh- a second shot at the title, just just like Rocky. But uh, no, it's great. It's great to be back. Great. And I want to ask you a bit about uh, your organization and 
who are you representing? Yep. So last time I was on the podcast, I was representing Eurometo. They're the non-ferrous metals producers. I have since changed. I represent uh, Euroelectric, which is the Association of European Electricity Producers. Um, I've left one sector in crisis and I joined another sector in, in something of a crisis. So I think don't, don't hire me, Mike. I only, I only bring bad news. <laughs> bring bad news. That's okay. That's okay. Uh, but, but this is the energy sector, actually. There's always a crisis. This is why it's actually fun and interesting. It's interesting times in the energy sector. Maybe a bit too, too interesting, but I think that the scale of the crisis is probably a bit, a bit too big, but it is, it is fascinating times. There's, there's no denying that. Mm-hmm. And, um, I, before we get into the crisis, which is the next next question, I just want to ask you, what is it about, and and we can return to it later, but what is it about the energy sector that keeps you in it? So you switched jobs, but you still kind of stayed in the energy sector. Yeah, well, for me, I've always been interested in energy since the beginning of my studies. And Mike, you're, to be transparent, you're actually my professor back back in the day, back, back about 12, 12 years ago now. I've always been very interested in energy. It's a fascinating sector. It just involves so many things. So you have markets, you have geopolitics, you have governments. It's extremely important. You know, when I open the paper in the morning, and I do like the paper with my with my coffee every morning before I turn my phone, I, I read the paper, and it, there's always at least two, three energy stories. You know, it impacts parts of everybody's lives. And also, you know, the big challenge or one of the biggest challenges of our time is is climate change. So we need a total transformation of the energy systems. And it's not a given. It's not... You know, it's a complex thing which is going to impact all parts of society. So I feel I'm working probably uh, the most interesting sector at the moment. And I plan to stay in it for for the rest of my career. Uh, Excellent. And we're going to cover a range of topics of the energy sector. Are you ready for it? I'm very ready. Uh, I think we're going to start with the crisis, but then after we're going to kind of dive into other issues and more day-to-day issues we deal with at at Euroelectric. Let's start at the heart of everything, which is the energy crisis in Europe. And maybe this is the most serious bit of the, of the discussion today. But uh, from an electricity point of view, we have the electricity market, we have the gas market, we have the EU market as a whole, um, which combines these in a very complex way. But I was wondering, could you maybe discuss from your point of view for the, uh, from the association, what are some really pressing issues with the current energy crisis? Yeah. So I guess the first thing I would say is we're probably experiencing more an energy price crisis than an energy crisis. So we will have enough energy to get through the winter, but the issue is just prices. So when we speak of kind of um, wholesale prices, they've increased by almost 500%. Retail's about 88%. So what we're seeing is very high increases in the prices of energy, and that's kind of the main crisis which we're, we're dealing with on the, on the daily basis. Okay. So it's an energy, you say it's an energy price problem. But is it an energy supply problem as well? So what it is, is pretty simple. It's a gas supply problem. So what we have is we have a shortage of gas in the system. Gas is very important. Um, with regards, gas is generally the price setting technology for electricity. So when we don't have enough gas. The price of gas, it goes up uh, an awful lot. And that has contagion effects on the electricity market. So essentially, we're seeing a, a gas shortage crisis which is having major contagion effects on electricity markets. Okay. And just to go to the, some basic things, how is gas used in the electricity sector? Yeah, so about one-third of gas goes to, goes to electricity, and the other third is obviously households and industry, but one-third goes to, goes to the electricity sector. 
Um, but the issue then with gas is even though gas might not be a huge part of the electricity mix in some member states and some it is, it generally sets the price in many hours. That's because we have the marginal pricing system and gas is a very flexible source. So basically electricity prices, I'm oversimplifying here, but often electricity prices is the gas price multiplied by two and you add the CO2 price on top. So that's why gas prices are so important for electricity. Okay, excellent. And um, it, it's a basic, and what's the solution? So we have, we have. <laughs> so that's the million dollar question. Um, first, I need to be honest and say this crisis will, will probably last 15 months or so. And I need to be honest and secondly say that there is no easy solution. In my association, we have spent an awful lot of time looking at solutions. They are things which can definitely uh, improve and ameliorate the issue, but there is no kind of silver bullet. Anybody who says there is is kind of selling you something which 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 isn't true. Uh, so what we can do, I do think that the first thing we need to do, the most important thing we need to do is to get gas prices in check. So I think the target of the invention should be in the on the gas market. The gas market has been subject to geopolitics and manipulation. Uh, it's no secret that Russia was benefiting from very high gas prices. So basically when they threatened to cut off Europe from supply, as they have done now, a large extent they accrue more money because there's uh the price of gas has gone up so if i was policymakers i would be targeting my my measures my interventions on the gas market what we've seen though is we've seen a wide range of measures i think so if we go into what's been done there's a lot of target support for vulnerable consumers we think that's that's important it makes sense you you know you can't protect everybody but you should have measures to protect the most vulnerable because when prices have gone as they have uh, they really feel the pinch and we've also seen a lot of kind of emergency interventions on the electricity market and some of these maybe don't make much sense we would say and some of them might actually undermine investor confidence and basically you need to kind of invest your way out of the crisis and there's there's just there's a lack of energy in the system at the moment so we need more energy and the best way to do that is to have more investment so we'd have some reservations on what's been proposed in the electricity markets, and we would have advised policymakers to focus more on the gas market. Mm -hmm. And I, uh, let me let me. There's a lot there, uh, and I really want to go into investments and incentivizing investments or future investments that are going to help us get out get out of this price crisis. But I will just say crisis as well. Um, but you just shifted it to say that that the the support should be, sorry, you, how did you, you phrased it in a way to, to shift it to the gas sector. Yeah, well, what I was kind of saying mm -hmm. is if you're, to, if you're a policymaker and you want to find a solution for the crisis, the root cause is in the gas market. So when you go after the electricity market, you're not solving the root cause. It's a bit like if there's an illness, you have to go after the root cause first. Everything else is secondary. So my advice to policymakers would be find a solution for the root cause. And what you need to do is basically lower gas prices while not totally undermining security supply. So that's where I would be focusing my efforts as a policymaker. Mm -hmm. And so maybe I, I bring out here then, and I don't mean to do it in like a confrontational manner, right? But I'll just <laughs> no, I'll just it's say, an open but, discussion. But, all good, but all good. Uh, like high profits for electricity producers, for example. So just on that, um, it's very important to distinguish oil and gas versus electricity producers. So oil and gas producers are the ones making the real windfall profits here. It's also represented in the share price. If you look at the share prices of oil and gas majors since the crisis has begun, they've really uh, gone up. If you look for the electricity sector, that's not the case. 
there is some windfall profits in our sector, but it's quite negligible. I would say, or, no, sorry, negligible is not the right word. It's quite limited, the windfall profits, by and large, it's in the oil and gas sector. And what we see from our sector is there's very much kind of winners and losers. We have had some companies going bust and we had to have kind of some emergency measures um, by member states. So I know for most, the guy in the street, he doesn't really distinguish between oil and gas versus electricity, but it is important to make that distinction. If I just give you one example, if you are a company like uh, Uniper, uh, big, large German utility, you know, you were, were buying gas from, from Russia. You kind of had a long-term contract at a certain price. You also have a contract to your customers in Germany that you will sell them electricity at a certain price. Then what happens, the gas from Russia is cut off. You have to then buy your supply from the spot market. So that's the, you know, the spot market at a very, very high price. So you've lost your low price supplier. You have to buy from the spot at a very high price and you're also legally obliged to provide your customer. So of course, you're going to make huge losses. So that's kind of in our sector, it's, it's much more complex and nuanced and we see winners and losers. And some people have actually, uh, yeah, would have gone bust without kind of a government intervention. Mm-hmm. And the German government had to step in and to help them. The German government uh, stepped in, yes. Mm-hmm. And maybe we should back up a little bit because we went right into the crisis right at the beginning uh, of our interview. But could you describe who are your members in your, your electric? Yeah, of course. So I'll, I'll take it a step back and yeah, I guess we jump straight into yeah, the crisis. Yeah, like, <laughs> right in the deep end, but it's, it's a good way to start off. No, f- fair enough. So basically, we are the European Electricity Association. So we represent the interest of electricity industry. My members are basically the EU27 plus five other members. So you have UK, Norway, etc. Uh, and we, yeah, and we also have the the companies as well. And we also represent the DSOs. So that's the grid side. So not TSOs, but DSOs. So basically, the almost a full value chain in electricity. So I think when you speak to your electric, you speak to me, you get a good horizontal perspective of the, of the situation. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of people who focus on kind of one solutions or one electricity source. We have the good horizontal overview, which we which we share with with policymakers. And to repeat, we're the association, so we kind of promote the interests of the electricity industry. But one thing which is kind of very good is when we speak of kind of the um, 2050 and the Paris Agreement. We basically need two revolutions. We need you know society to electrify, and we need power to decarbonize. So by promoting the interests of the electricity industry, we're promoting also the interests of society uh, meeting our 1.5 degree scenario. Mm-hmm. Actually, for me, you have an easy job <laughs> because, because uh, everyone wants to electrify, right? And, and have a green energy system and to decarbonize. So you have a great job, don't you? Well, plans are always easy. It's very clear the plan what we need to do. It's achieving that implementation is always the always the tricky part. Oh, so, okay, uh, okay. I have an easy job in terms of a lot of what's agreed in, in terms of plans. Most people are in a, a consensus that electrifying society is the way to go. So that makes it easier. I'm not sitting in rooms trying to convince people of that. Most people have signed up to it. But it's a bit trickier in terms of how we get there. That's uh, ah. the devil. The devil's in the detail, Mike. Okay, okay, great. And um, so you're, you're the director of policy then. Uh, what does that actually mean? Because, yeah, in one one hand, you, you have this goal of decarbonization by, by 2050, and you're just lucky to be on the My Energy 2050 podcast, actually. We, so we, we were joined up with our goals. But um, how, how do you formulate your policy among such a diverse membership group? Okay, so, so, reaching cons- so we're a consensus-based organization. 
Um, so the general way things go is you you reach agreement through through negotiation and discussion amongst members, and it generally it generally works out. Obviously, there's going to be difference of interest. Uh, member states electricity mixes are very different. Uh, you cannot compare France, very nuclear based, with with Poland, which is much more coal in their system. You have the Nordics, which obviously have a lot of hydropower, and they've also kind of the Nord Pool, very open, flexible electricity markets with other places which have kind of different setups. So there is very different interests and structures out there, but by and large, we find ways to come together and uh, adopt positions on, on the key issues. Mm-hmm. And um, l- then let me go to some of the challenges. So in one sense, you have an easy sell. Yes, we're going to decarbonize by 2050. But what are what, from your experience of representing this organization and some policy short-term, both crisis, which you're having to deal with, but also longer-term, what, what are from your perspective, are some barriers that you're facing or some challenges in trying to get across the association's kind of hope in what the policy framework will be? Yeah, so I think in terms of the, the challenges in getting there, there's a lot we need to need to achieve. Uh, the first most important thing is technolog- technologically-wise, uh, I mispronounced that, technology-wise, I think it's the correct term, uh, Power is largely there. So we're kind of 60% decarbonized, would be 80% by, by 2030. So it's not like we're pushing very much for, we need the new technologies. They are already there. It's kind of implementing them there and having the, the necessary kind of uh, uh, means for the investments we need. And linked to that, a big challenge is actually on the grid side. So as we move more towards kind of decentralized model of electricity and more prosumers, a lot more emphasis is going to kind of take place on the grid, the kind of DSO side of things. So your electric vehicle, your heat pumps, this is all kind of done at the smaller scale grid. So investments there are a big challenge. That that's kind of one one key thing key thing we see. Mm-hmm. Um, and do you think this crisis is going to because now it's also an economic crisis? So it's not just an energy price crisis or an energy crisis, but we're having this economic crisis coming as well. And do you think that governments are willing to spend the money to beef up the electrical network to realize this? Yeah, so the, there's a couple of things there. There's the, the immediate crisis and there's the long term. Um, on the immediate crisis, uh, we've seen governments have been quite willing to to react to, to shield consumers from the price increases. Uh, the price increases are so extreme that there is a need for, for some intervention, particularly to, to protect the most vulnerable. It's a very, very tricky balance, and you know I can't sit here and say do it like this. But you need to have some price increases to signal changes of behavior because we do need to use less electricity this winter and probably next winter. Now, this is coming from someone who you know I represent Electricity Association. We should want to sell more electrons, but you know we know the gravity of the situation, so we're very much encouraging energy sobriety this winter and next winter. So governments have been willing to intervene there, but again, you know, if you shield consumers too much from the price increases, then they're not going to change behavior. So we've seen governments very willing to get involved there. Then going forward to 2045, 2050 and investments that are needed, uh, we'll have to see how that that develops. Um, it's too too early to say, but you know, there is a lot of investment needed, and particularly if you speak of electric vehicles, the, the charging stations, all these things, this takes money and there's need for a kind of government uh, involvement too. Mm-hmm. Is, there, is there a danger that um, too much is focused on household consumers or industrial consumers and the electrification of, of transportation is left to the side? Um, for the moment, we don't see that. I, w- I have to say the outlook on, 
on electrification of transport uh, is good. I think the debate is largely finished, with possibly the exception of heavy-duty vehicles, where we would still say electrification makes the most sense. But there is a genuine debate there. I think for everything else, everyone knows electrification of transport is the way to go. And I think last year, what, two out of 11 cars which were sold were, were electric vehicles. So we're clearly going that way. And we will have banned the internal combustion engine by 2035. So the regulation is quite clear and we would see the ambition uh, matching that over time. Okay. And um, you mentioned before the, um, the different prices um, in, or the different components of the electricity price. And one of them was the emissions uh, credits or the emissions trading scheme that's involved here in the EU. Um, do you see that price changing or how, how is that? Because that's meant to influence investment and send a signal. Uh, how 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 do you see that changing both in the short term with this crisis, which is some would say it's a burden that should be eliminated or be capped, uh, and how do you see it uh, evolving over the longer term to change investment? Yeah, well, I think the first most important thing to understand is the CO two element on electricity prices is quite small uh, given the current crisis. So the CO two price I think is around eighty euro per ton as we record this podcast. Um, you know, the pass through, so basically that's the CO2 impact on prices is, I think, uh, 0.51 in Europe. So that's about a 40 euro increase on prices. You know, if prices are very high, over 300, 400 at the moment, then that's about 10, 12% of the price. So the CO2 element on the price is quite small, the price increase. That, that's very important to understand. And I would just repeat, this is the gas is four-fifths of the price increase. So it's really, it's the gas which is driving the high price. So I know it might be easier for politicians to say it's the CO2, it's the ETS which is killing prices. That's simply just not true. So that's the first thing to say. And in terms of the CO2 impact on power, what we see is as the CO2 price rises, which it will, it's going to be much harder for a kind of high emitting generation to compete against lower emitting generation. And that kind of, to some extent, that is that is the point. No, you're supposed to, the ETS is supposed to send a direct pricing signal to incentivize low carbon technologies. And that's that's what we see. Mm-hmm. And um, maybe we can switch to a little bit uh, to the industrial consumers. And how how do you see this impacting them? And how because right now, for example, you brought up the Uniper example, uh, and them using gas and selling gas and gas making up such a important part of the industrial sector in in consuming power for both power production but also for industrial processes themselves. Um, how do you see the industry maybe making the changes that are necessary to stay in Europe because of the high gas prices? Yep. So I think when we speak of electrification, we will see an electrification of industry. So energy intensive processes like steel, chemicals, non-ferrous metals, etc. I worked for the non-ferrous metal sector for over five years, so I have a good kind of overview of that. What you have is you have some industries which are already fully electrified, like aluminium and zinc. And you have others like steel and chemicals which will electrify and they'll either have direct electrification or indirect electrification where they use hydrogen and more electricity to to promote that. So that's kind of how we see them going in terms of electrification. Uh, the big challenge we see is is um, to some extent the price at the moment is maybe a disincentification to, to electrify their processes. And um, so we'll have to kind of find ways to for the price to go down, which we expect. This is a this is a crisis which will last, but kind of medium term when you're making your investment decisions, I think electrification of the process is, is the way to go. Uh, but it is quite serious in terms of the impact of the crisis. 
on um, industrial processes. As I said, I work for non-ferrous metals. If I speak of aluminium, 50%, so 5-0 of the aluminium produced in Europe, mainland Europe today, has been curtailed or shut down since the crisis began. And that's pretty simple. If you're fully exposed to spot market electricity prices, and you know, you're paying 30 euro megawatts uh, two years ago, and now it's over 300, then you're losing a lot of money because electricity is 40% of your costs. And these are obviously globally competing industries. So if your electricity has not increased as much uh, in places outside of Europe, which is the case, then they then obviously being a global uh, being competing in a global marketplace means it's very hard for you to to stay alive. Maybe if we can turn to Fit for Fifty Five and the uh, Repower EU plans, how how does this uh, affect your association, or what's the position of the association for these? Yeah, so I think the so Fit for Fifty Five and Repower EU. Um, well, first thing I think the reaction to the Russian invasion is has been quite positive in terms of the climate agenda. It might be maybe one step back because we see a short-term increase of kind of maybe coal in some places, even though it's not huge. But it's going to be five steps forward because it is the plan is very clear to have this huge build-out of renewable electricity. So kind of what we do is we're about first setting the targets for Fit for 55 and then how we implement them. In terms of the key targets, um, we have a 55% greenhouse gas reduction target for 2030, which is very ambitious. We have increased our renewables targets from 40% to 45% by 2030. And then we have lots of other kind of sub-targets on energy efficiency, etc. And so that's kind of what we're working towards. But I think the, the key element of the Repower EU was that the Commission said that we need to kind of get off fossil fuels and we need to move towards kind of a clean electrification. And what they see is the huge build-out of wind and solar is probably the way to go. They set a target of 732 gigawatts of wind and solar by 2030. To put in context, that's probably three times more wind and solar than is currently in place today. So it's a huge build out, hugely ambitious. But that that is the target. And I, I do personally, I think it's the way to go. And we've come with the right kind of medium term strategy. The short term for for this winter and next winter is, is a kind of a separate issue. That's the supply and demand curves. But in the medium term, I do see the outlook as being quite positive. Mm-hmm. And so if it's, uh, that's a massive increase over what we have now then in such a short period of time in less than eight years, basically. I mean, by the thing, time things wrap up. And do your members then see this both as a business opportunity? Um, or wh- how, let me put this in a different context. What, what is the balance between those that see this as a business opportunity by producing the goods, like, for example, the solar panels or things that go into the solar panels, things that go into the wind power generators, wind generators as well, compared to those companies that are having to be encouraged or having to accelerate their electrification process. Yeah, so I think in terms of my members, by and large, most people would sign up to the the feeling that this build out of wind and solar makes sense. I think it's a good thing. But from their perspective, they see kind of two key obstacles. The first is permitting. So it can take kind of seven to 10 years to get permitting for these projects. And it takes 18 to 24 months to build. So that's, that doesn't make sense. We need to speed up the permitting. There is some legislation in place at EU level to try and limit it to, to maximum two years and trying to, in this kind of accelerated go-to areas that permitting can be capped uh, for maximum two years because it's in a common public interest. And it is given the current situation. And the second, which is kind of linked to your question is, 
supply chain issues. And that's what we're we're seeing a bit is there is issues with supply chains. And when we speak of supply chains, there's kind of two things. There's the critical raw materials, which you need for kind of the batteries. So that's your lithium, that's your cobalt, that's your nickel, etc. And then there's just your general supply chains, which you have for like wind and solar. And, you know, we see big backlogs in supply chains. So having the supply we need to build these plants, that's becoming an obstacle too. And it's just too much too much demand and not enough supply. So we need to have uh, some policies in place to, to kind of address the supply chain challenges my members are facing. Maybe we go to the, the social side of it, because you mentioned it takes seven to eight years to build something on average, on average. Um, so no, seven to sorry. eight years to get the permitting. To permit, yes. But sorry. to build, it takes less than two years. Okay. Uh, and so this, uh, this permitting, and then, but society has to be involved uh, I know in the United States, under the what, the Inflation and du- <laughs> Reduction Act or whatever they call it, but it's this big push in the United States now. They're also looking to tackle how long it takes to do the permitting process, too. That was seen as a, a big barrier, and they're trying to reduce the time as well. But how is this balance? How could, because if it takes so long now, seven to eight years, it's, it's years, you, over five years, we could even say, how do you reduce it to even two years? Are there some solutions for this? Yeah, I think so. I think we have quite a lot of, you know, experience in building renewables now. I think there is kind of certain, we say, gold standards and how these things should be done. And that's quite clear. You know, if you come with the gold standard and say, when you have these projects, this is the way it should be done, then I think we see that it can be done in a way which kind of protects and actually promotes biodiversity. So we, we do see it as a win-win. And as I said, given the experience and the fact we can set up gold standards for these processes now, we think it can be done where you have the permitting in less than two years and it's a win-win for both biodiversity and and production Mm -hmm. and then on the you mentioned the supply chain problems uh and you also said that there would be this crisis for the next uh, correct me if i'm wrong at the beginning as i remember 18 months or so um how, how how will the supply chain problem resolve itself and how do we start to come out of this crisis period yeah, so on the on the crisis period, um, so I did say kind of 18, 15 months. I do think next winter could be a challenge. I hope I'm wrong. Eh? I hope I'm just being pessimistic and everything is fine after this winter. But we have to be conscious that basically we need to replace 155, 100, 170 BCM of Russian gas. And that's not something you can do overnight. You need to have the infrastructure uh, to do that. If it is gas and it's LNG, you know, US has been very good to us. They've sent us a lot of LNG recently, but the reality is we don't have the infrastructure in place to replace the Russian gas at the levels we need. So that's kind of why we see a potential challenge also next winter. Again, I hope I'm wrong, but I'm just flagging that this, this could last. Uh, with regards to supply chains, again, you know, markets are designed to react to supply and demand. So we hope that the markets will be able to react and kind of show more and more flexibility. We would encourage, though, that the, the European Commission get more involved in kind of raw materials and access to these critical raw materials because we're, we're basically moving from a, a fossil fuel intensive economy to a raw materials intensive economy. I think it's important that as Europe, we're quite you know aware of that, we're quite attuned, and we come with a strategy so that we're not overly dependent on any one key supplier for these raw materials. We'll, we'll have to import... We'll have to import lots of them. That That's okay. We believe in open, fair trade. That's okay. But we shouldn't go to a situation of over-dependence. That's, that's what we need to avoid against. So kind of a clear raw material strategy on access to these critical raw materials is, is important. And to some extent, China is ahead of us in that game. And we need to, we need to catch up. Mm-hmm. 
I'm, I'm just wondering, how, how does the border adjustment mechanism um, that you're going to be implementing uh, affect this? Because on one hand, if the cost of producing things, manufacturing, is so high in, I know, the might <laughs> if the price is so high to produce things in Europe, because Europe is essentially energy resource poor, um, but they can look at the United States or other parts of the world where energy is much cheaper to produce things. Uh, how much does this border adjustment mechanism come into play to ensure both what what, what do you see products and products that are made from green energy uh, are able to come into the EU, but also there's an assurance or a promotion somehow that manufacturing uh, of these energy intensive, let's say, products stays in in the EU. Yeah. So border adjustment mechanism i think it's important to distinguish between areas which have cheap energy and then areas which have a much higher co2 footprint than us so if a country has cheaper energy than us then we just have to accept that that's uh that might be linked to geographic endowments they might have lots of you know geothermal hydro uh, for example we have iceland here it's very cheap energy that's fair play to them that's a natural advantage they have and there's nothing we can do about that the issue we see is for some products, particularly energy-intensive products, they have a much higher CO2 footprint. So one sector I know very well is aluminium. A ton of aluminium in Norway or France is four tons of CO2. In China, it's over 20. So then we need to find ways to address that. And the carbon border adjustment mechanism is seen as a way to address that. It's very complex, though, and it's very hard to do. And there's a few kind of key challenges. I think one important thing as well is you it's very hard to do a WTO, so World Trade Organization compatible uh, carbon border adjustment mechanism where you can still export our products. That's why we might find a way to kind of charge the CO2 at the border. We can find a way to export and still then get kind of compensated for the CO2 element we pay and others do. So there's a risk that with this measure, we will create industries in Europe which are not able to export low carbon products outside of Europe. So that's just one example. So the carbon border is just a mechanism. I work on it less now in my current role, but I really worked on it a lot in my previous role. It sounds good on paper, but the implementation obstacles are very major. We're going for it, and that's that's been decided by policymakers, but um, there is some skepticism that this will be a very effective measure in achieving its goals. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Excellent. And then, uh, Killian, because we're running out of time, and I'm aware of this, but I, I want to maybe turn it a little bit more to your experience and your your work history so yeah you worked for euro metal uh in the past and now you're Euro electric you're also a former cu student uh from one of my classes and i think we talked about this in, in the previous podcast but maybe my my question usually i start off the interview uh like this but maybe we'll work in in reverse and i just want to ask you about both uh, your role now and looking at the knowledge that you have and what you've learned over the years in your different positions and, and what kind of, what advice, I don't want to say what, it would, what you would give to yourself 10, 15 years ago when you were a student, but looking back now, uh, for those that are interested in the energy sector um, and climate change and sustainability, but maybe we'll focus on energy because we both, I think, would say have passion for energy. Um, how how did you pick up your skills and how did you pick up your knowledge over the years? Yeah, well, first I would say is I would I would definitely recommend any potential student who's interested in energy to go into the sector. Uh, I was always very interested in energy. 
my background was I, I studied, Mike, you're my, my professor uh, in CU, and I also worked as a journalist in that time. And I wrote a lot in energy articles. At the time, it was about diversification of gas supplies to Central Europe, this Nabucco pipeline. So I was very naturally inquisitive. So I kind of always wanted to, to go into the energy sector. I focused on energy in CU, and then I went to the commission to do a traineeship in, in energy. So I would recommend it. Uh, in terms of advice, I would say, if, you know, be inquisitive and follow what you're interested in. So, you know, if you're naturally inquisitive, I think there's a lot to learn in energy. And even if you're a social science student like myself and not an engineer, if you're interested, you'll manage to get your head around these, these complicated things if you, if you show enough interest. And the last advice I would have is, I think it's good to work for people rather than institutions. So I see it even with some of my, my classmates. It's not a criticism, but they say, oh, I want to work for, you know, I want to work for this institution or I want to work for the World Bank or I want to work for this. I don't think you should do that. I think you should say, okay, I want to work for this woman, this guy. They're inspiring. So that's, that's what the only three tips I, I would have. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's too simple. Okay. No, no, I, I, and I would totally agree with with uh, working with a person rather than an organization because you can be really surprised by uh, the tremendous I don't know talent pool of people out there working for small organizations or that are not on the radar of or not involved in big organizations. Hundred percent, I agree. And when you're studying, you, you don't have that exposure, so you think, okay, these are the big organizations; these are the ones to work for. But it's it's much more complex than that when you when you begin your professional career. Yeah, and I would actually have to say, for doing this podcast, this is one of the best things is just meeting different people based on their interests or the things that they're doing, rather than uh, the organization looking at an organization and saying, "Oh, I want to talk to them." I usually just aim for an individual that that's out there doing something, and then I I talk to them, and I think, yeah, the content of the podcast comes comes through much better. Yeah, hundred percent, hundred percent. Yeah. Uh, and Killian, I have uh, a few more questions for you. Um, another question is, what about the mix of energy, both currently, uh, and you mentioned what the current mix is, but I was interested if we're going to go all renewables, because the idea is that, well, we can't have all renewables. And certainly Germany, uh, the shortage of gas in Germany comes quite a big, as a big surprise to them, because they were going to rely on Russian gas. Uh, for the electricity sector, also for industrial processes. And now that's going to be really expensive. But if we're going to go with all uh, renewable energy or we'll say clean energy as well, how do you begin to balance that mix? And what, what should the mix be in the future? Yeah, so first thing I would say is, well, demand is going to go up um, a lot. So there's different projections, but probably it's possible you will double electricity demand from now to 2030. So in terms of terawatt hours, you'd have a, have a doubling. So that's the first thing to understand. So even if your your share in the mix stays the stays the same, that represents a doubling of, of demand. Okay. So going forward, um, wind and solar seem to be the technologies which will take a much bigger share of the of the market, according to the Commission's kind of clean plan for all strategy of twenty forty five. I think it's eighty percent wind and solar they see by twenty forty five. So these are sources which can be built uh, very competitively and they can be built quite fast. The challenges they pose, which is very well documented, is they're kind of variable intermittent sources of electricity. And that is not a problem per se once we solve the issue of storage and flexibility. Mm -hmm. And for that, it so it depends where you're located. So if you're in the Nordics, you have hydropower, which is a great kind of storage 
um, storage technology. I think 95% of the storage technology in Europe today is hydropower. But that's obviously based on geographical endowments. So if you're lucky enough to have big hydro reserves close to you, then you have a natural battery to work with this kind of variable sources of renewables. If you are not located close to hydropower, then there's other sources you can use. We do see battery technology as taking off. This is more short-term than kind of long-term um, kind of storage flexibility, but we do see batteries taking off. Uh, other alternatives are power to gas, and also hydrogen could be a storage technology. But again, I wouldn't be too confident that hydrogen will be as big as we're making out. It, it's less efficient than electricity. But if it does take off, it's a big if, then it will. It could have a role as a storage technology in, in electricity. Mm -hmm. Let me follow up first with the hydrogen and then with the battery the technology. And the first one is the hydrogen. Uh, I'm actually releasing the episode uh, today or tomorrow with Florian Kern, who's a researcher uh, in, in Berlin, and looking at this from the German perspective. And in our discussion, his point was we need to electrify everything first uh, before going with hydrogen for industrial process, say, just because it's, it requires so much renewable energy. And what, what is the view there is that do we actually need dedicated or dedicated locations with renewable energy that's just producing hydrogen because the requirement could be so high for industry. So first I would say I would agree with your, your guess who you referenced. I think direct electrification is just much more efficient and that's what we need to do. We need to have as much direct electrification as possible. For certain high heat processes, for example in steel or chemicals, uh, you can't necessarily electrify everything so you might need some some hydrogen but I think it will be a scarce resource and a very valuable resource. So then you have to decide, okay, how do you, what do you do, what do you use with the, the limited resource? So that's kind of how, how we would see hydrogen. Where you locate hydrogen, that's on the hydrogen planners, but what you said seems to make a lot of sense, and that's kind of what the commission is saying. If you look at their hydrogen strategy, you know, particularly in the, the North Sea, you have kind of a cluster off Denmark and UK where there's kind of going to be a lot of kind of offshore wind, they say that that might be a good place to locate hydrogen, for example. So I think the hydrogen clusters will closely follow where we have kind of cheap renewable electricity. That's that's what I would expect, yes. Mm -hmm. Excellent. And then uh, with battery storage technology, actually you're here in Budapest for the Budapest Battery Days, I think is the title of it. And what was the discussion there? I, you don't have to summarize the whole conference and everything, but but from the session maybe that you were in, what, what, what was your impression of the direction of yeah, storage technology or so. Yeah, so I think the discussion it can be summarized kind of quite quite short. It's basically we're going to have this huge build out of intermittent renewables, as I said, and we need batteries in places where there is not hydropower. And then the question is how efficient are the batteries? What's the best technology, etc. So on that, I was there more in listening mode to see okay, what's the best things out there. And speaking of Hungary, there seems to be a big push to kind of make Hungary a, a battery hub in Europe. We'll probably have a hub in Germany, probably one in the Nordics and one in Hungary. We'll see how things develop, but that seems to be the way things are going in terms of the, the battery hubs for, for Europe. Mm -hmm. Production hubs. Mm -hmm. Okay, and then uh, if, we, if we have renewables, so many renewables, and balanced out with, with battery technology or it's stored with batteries, um, we don't need nuclear power? Or how does, <laughs> how does, what is the role of nuclear power in the future? Because it, it serves a, a really strong role when we talk about, yeah, the criticism is, yes, if we have renewables, we have too much intermittent uh, production and we need coal or we'll just say go with nuclear power. We need nuclear power for baseload. Is that right? Yeah, so 
first, like my association, we're technology neutral. But you know what we do is we do do analysis and we say, okay, this is kind of technologies we see in in the future energy mix. Nuclear is a very political and a very sensitive topic, and what we see is it very much depends on the member states. So if you're asking a German and Austrian what to think of nuclear, you will get uh, sorry, I said German and Austrian. I should have said a French and an Austrian uh, of nuclear. You will get very very different responses. There is something of a renaissance in certain member states. Uh, it's no secret that Macron, before the election, he said France is going to have a build-out of new new nuclear. In UK, it's the same. We have you no, know, we have Hinkley Point C. We have a new one on well on the way. Sidwell, uh, Finland's opening recently of a new nuclear plant. I think the Swedish government has recently said they want to go nuclear. And in Central Europe, I think we will see more nuclear build-outs as well. So I do see that in lots of kind of member states which are pro-nuclear, that they will keep that approach. And when we speak of sources of electricity, decarbonized sources, which we need to speak about, there is other technologies out there. But for the moment, there's four main ones. There's wind and solar, there's nuclear, and there's hydropower. So you know, you have to choose or you have to kind of be looking at from that basis. And if you think wind and solar are not the way to go and you don't have much hydropower, then nuclear has to be part of the of the discussion. Mm-hmm. And last thing I would just say is one issue we see for nuclear is that the build-out of new nuclear is quite expensive at the moment. So the strike price for, for Hinkley Point C was 92.5 pounds. It was quite, quite expensive. But we do, you know... If there is a big build out, the the economic thinking is that that could become cheaper, and new technologies coming on out soon is this kind of idea of a SMR. These are small modular reactors, and the idea is you kind of have a mass production of small modular reactors. That will mean that uh, the price for nuclear, which you you agree, will will become cheaper. So that's kind of how we see see nuclear going forward. Mm-hmm. But the small nu- uh, modular units for nuclear power, uh, it's still well, I'll just call it, it's still experimental technology. And, and how many years away is that? It's still experimental technology. I have to say that the industry is quite excited about it. And that's that's global. So that's not just in in Europe. I was at the International Electricity Summit recently and J- Japanese, Americans are very interested in this technology. There is a lot of pilot projects. There's one in Canada for 2027. There's some in Europe, some, some in uh, Japan as well. So it seems that it can be done. The issue is basically, uh, can we make it a mass-produced product? You know, it, it's it's not an iPhone, but the idea is similar, that if you have a mass production of something, you can really reduce the cost. So that's kind of the, the thinking. As I said, I used to work for metals and, and mining, and for a mine, you know, SMR is the perfect technology because often you locate a mine in a very isolated area, and you need these, these processes are very energy-intensive. So if you could hypothetically have a SMR close to your mind, you have a carbon-free source of, of electricity, it's a, it's a win-win, definitely. Mm-hmm. So I have, a, I have a great question. So by 2045, are we going to see small modular nuclear power units or are we going to see lots of hydrogen? <laughs> um, I think I do expect we will see SMRs by 2045, yes. On hydrogen, there will be more than there is present, but uh, it will be nowhere near. Um, I should phrase that maybe a little differently. There will be more hydrogen than present. Uh, the 20 million tons of hydrogen, which the commission is asking for, is, is very unlikely. Uh, so I don't see this huge takeoff, but there will be more than present. 
and it will be a, a very valuable resource which will be used in the most needed applications. That's what I expect. Okay. So I don't think we'll have this mass hydrogen economy, no. My one question, though, is that I haven't asked was about financing barriers. Mm -hmm. And this, I think, is one of the most important areas when we talk about investments. And if we even think about the rising interest rates, for example, in more of a macroeconomic perspective, is financing for new renewable energy projects, uh, is that seen as a barrier for you or for the organization's members? Um, so far, it hasn't been flagged as one of the main ones. Uh, from our side, the two main barriers, which everyone repeats, is permitting and access to materials. This financing aspect seems to be secondary thus far from, what I, from the feedback, all the feedback I've got. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Okay. Killian, that's all my questions. I just want to thank you so much again for coming back a second time to the My Energy 2050 podcast. Thank you. Thanks. It's been, it's been my pleasure. Thank you for joining us for this episode. We produce the My Energy 2050 podcast to learn about cutting edge research and the people building our clean energy system. If you enjoyed this episode or any episode, please share it. The more we spread our message of the ease of an energy transition, the faster we can make it. You can follow us on LinkedIn, where we are the most active on the My Energy 2050 webpage, or on Twitter and Facebook. I'm your host, Michael LaBelle. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. <laughs>